Welcome to the Expert Series, brought to you by the Lupus Foundation of America. Our health education team is here to bring you experts in lupus to discuss topics to help you live better. Thank you for tuning in today. My name is Lauren, and I'll be your host. In today's episode, we are so thrilled to welcome back to the Expert Series, Dr. Brad Roven, nephrologist, director of nephrology, and director of the College of Medicine's Clinical Trials Management Organization at Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Today's episode is also funded by Arinia Pharmaceuticals. Arinia Pharmaceuticals is committed to supporting the needs of the lupus nephritis community. And that's why they created the All In Program, a source of information, resources, and support for those affected by lupus nephritis and inflammation of the kidneys caused by lupus. For more information, visit allinforln.com. Dr. Rovin consults with Arinia Pharmaceuticals regarding lupus nephritis trials, so we are very excited to have him. Welcome, Dr. Rovin. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, I'm going to jump right into our questions. It's a very exciting time for research for the kidneys and for, for people with lupus who've been wanting some solutions and wanting to know how to live better with lupus nephritis. So I really am excited to uh, see what you have in store for us today. So previously, Dr. Rovin did an episode on lupus in the kidneys last year. Dr. Rovin, you mentioned in this episode that about 30 to 40% of people with lupus will have some kind of kidney involvement upon their diagnosis of lupus. So my first question is, can you tell us a little bit about lupus diagnosis and what to expect if someone is told that they have lupus, but it's already begun to attack their kidneys? What is that range of complications and what is someone to expect on that first initial diagnosis visit? So this is is really uh, a variety of ways that uh, this can manifest in in the patient with uh, lupus. A lot of the time, and and always, I should mention to the patients who are listening, um, your physician who is monitoring you for your lupus should check your urine and some blood tests uh, whenever they check you out for lupus to make sure uh, that the kidney is okay or to see if the kidney has become involved. And generally, that can be very subtle. Uh, So patients can have some abnormalities in the urinalysis. Uh, such as bleeding, uh, and uh, this amount of blood is generally small enough that you cannot see it with the naked eye, but we can see it under the microscope. Also, sometimes protein appears uh, in the urine, and the kidney is a, a filter uh, to clean the blood, as, as everyone knows, uh, but the, the kidney retains protein because we need the circulating proteins to remain in our, in our, in our bodies, but a, a damaged kidney can start to leak protein out. And uh, if this uh, level of proteinuria, that's urine protein, exceeds a certain amount, then people can develop swelling, um, and then it's noticeable. And that may be the first symptom that a patient uh, would notice. Um, But sometimes the amount of protein is significant but has not reached that level, and the only way you would uh, really pick this up early is uh, by doing uh, these sorts of diagnostic tests like the urinalysis. So I really encourage uh, this to be done really very simple at almost every visit that you have with your rheumatologist, for example, who might be managing your uh, systemic lupus. Um, The other test that we uh, 
often uh, want to uh, do uh, on patients with, with lupus is to look at kidney function. And it's a very simple blood test. It's part of routine chemistry panel in every hospital, uh, certainly in the United States, and it's called serum creatinine. And this is a blood test that is indicative of how the kidney is uh, functioning, how it's doing its job. And um, I like to make people remember this uh, Creatinine is like a golf score. The lower is better. Uh, so when we start to see a uh, deterioration in kidney function, uh, the creatinine starts to creep up. And, and just to educate uh, the folks in the audience, um, creatinine is a metabolite from uh, the muscles. So we all produce it and it's uh, excreted in the urine. It's a waste product. And so you can imagine that um, under normal circumstances, the kidney gets rid of it and we have a low level in our bloodstream. And then as the kidney starts to not be able to function appropriately, this can increase and build up. And so those are really uh, two real, very important tests that are indicators that the kidney may have um, become involved in, uh, with the lupus uh, in patients with SLE. Okay, thank you. That that's really helpful. And I wonder, as you're as you're talking about that, the kidney involvement, is it possible to have a little bit of kidney involvement or a little bit of protein that might be concerning but isn't necessarily full fledged lupus nephritis? Where what is that scale like? Yeah, I, I think you know it's uh, again a lot of this may be semantics or the way you 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 know you want to express it. Um, I think. Um, that we have various levels of kidney pathology that can be caused by uh, lupus, okay? And some of it can be, just as you said, a very low level of protein in the urine, uh, some blood in the urine, some red blood cells in the urine, uh, normal kidney function. And um, this sort of uh, involvement may not really reach clinical significance that one would have to do something about. And if we did a kidney biopsy to look at the tissue, um, this may be a class one or a class two uh, lupus nephritis. We have um, the people who look at kidney tissue, kidney biopsies uh, have created along with nephrologists and rheumatologists, a classification of kidney disease in lupus. Um, and, and, and so this might be a very low level of being affected. Patients with that, we often find that their kidney sort of gets better when their systemic lupus is treated. They don't need necessarily advanced or, or heavy-duty treatment uh, for a class 2 lupus nephritis, for example. Now, more commonly, though, uh, when we see patients with uh, a lupus nephritis, um, they have more involvement, and this is the other classes of lupus that we see under the microscope. Um, and you may hear your physician say class three or class four or class five. And, and you would say, oh, well, that means three is worse than two and four is worse than three and five is the worst of all. And it isn't really like that. Um, that's really um, means uh, different types of um, lesions that we see under the microscope. And in fact, a class three and four uh, tend to be the, the most aggressive forms of, of lupus nephritis. They can be very inflammatory and they 
almost always require treatment. So you would never simply um, watch uh, a patient with class three or four. They almost always require additional treatment besides what the patient may be getting for their systemic lupus. So if you start to look at um, really, if, if I were to do a kidney biopsy <clears throat> of patients with lupus who are asymptomatic, you can actually find in, in many, many patients, some deposits of immunoglobulin or immune complexes. These are the antibodies that are sort of attacking the body in lupus, the autoantibodies as they're often called. Uh, they often do deposit in the kidney. So I would say that most people have some very mild involvement of the kidney and many of those patients never come to clinical attention with respect to the kidney because it doesn't proceed any further. How, how a patient goes from very little bit to actual clinical lupus nephritis is, is a very good question and something that's undergoing active research, how a person will be predisposed to doing that versus never having a clinically important manifestation in their lifetime. So I think some of these are open questions, but um, I, I, you know, generally in my practice, I take most forms of lupus nephritis uh, pretty seriously and uh, try to uh, distinguish what type of lupus is affecting the kidney. And that often does um, come up to needing a kidney biopsy, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, but anyway, the, the point is that then I use that information to decide on sort of a personalized treatment plan for that patient. And sometimes it is nothing more uh, with a very low level of involvement than, than just continuing the patient on the therapy that they might be getting uh, for their systemic lupus. Great. That's really helpful to kind of clarify that spectrum. And it seems like what you said, it's an open question. There's ongoing research for this, and that's why it's important for people to be involved in research and for, for that to continue so that we can uh, know, know more about it. You mentioned people maybe having the class one or two, and maybe being able to continue the treatment that they already have for lupus. What sort of things can people do to make their kidneys healthier? Are there mm -hmm. certain choices that they should make, just lifestyle choices that people should make that can keep them as healthy as possible? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, lupus patients and patients with kidney disease in general uh, do have a lot of things that they can do uh, just in terms of simple lifestyle uh, modifications that would benefit the kidney. Uh, so the very first uh, and maybe the, the most important thing is if a person does develop a kidney disease uh, with lupus, so a lupus nephritis, we want their blood pressure to be under excellent control. And um, sometimes <clears throat> blood pressure can be under excellent control be with medication, of course, um, but people can do a lot to help their blood pressure. One important thing is to be active, and um, I'm not saying to do strenuous exercise, but uh, not be totally sedentary. Um, weight loss is important, and diet is important. So, um, people in the United States tend to eat a lot of processed food, a lot of fast food, and this is loaded with sodium, with salt. So um, I often find that many of my patients are taking in a very large amount of salt, and uh, that can uh, play a role in maintaining high blood pressure. And it can also actually um, interfere with some of the medications we use to control blood pressure and override 
the antihypertensive effects. So in terms of lifestyle, I think eating a healthy diet, and, and by eating a healthy diet, I mean watching your salt intake, avoiding uh, pre-processed foods, canned foods, uh, unless they're low sodium, uh, and then also thinking about how much salt you're adding as you prepare your meals. One of the little tricks I tell patients is that, you know, a lot of recipes uh, call for addition of salt. And I said, this is just salt that goes into the recipe. It doesn't really flavor the food. You don't even know it's there, but it's providing sodium burden. So I suggested instead of adding salt as called for by the recipe, just sprinkle a little bit on like a pinch when you're eating your meal. And that way you sort of have that satisfactory salt flavor or the addition of the taste. Um, but it really reduces the uh, sodium intake. So that's one little trick. Uh, weight loss is really important. People, obviously, patients with lupus have all sorts of body sizes, but um, <clears throat> excess weight can have an impact on blood pressure control, and it can also have an impact on the kidney directly. We actually have kidney diseases, not lupus-related necessarily, but kidney diseases related to obesity. Um, and specific lesions that we can see in the, in the kidney under the microscope. So weight control, let me, let me put it that way. Maintaining a healthy weight would be important. And, and through that exercise. Uh, believe it or not, smoking, even though we all think about smoking in the lungs, uh, smoking can have uh, adverse uh, effects on the kidney as well. And so we would really, and we do counsel our patients to uh, really cut down or avoid smoking. Um, and I know that's that's really hard, but it's really something that would benefit the patient with lupus and the patient without lupus, all the patient's friends and relatives that are around them. So uh, we, we do advocate that. So those are some of the uh, lifestyle modifications that I think um, really do help and are under the patient's uh, control. That was a lot of really good information. I really like what you said about the sodium burden. Yes. And about how to, how that, that I never heard that before. And I really like that. I'm definitely going to use that again. <laughs> and I will credit you, but it, that seems like a really helpful mindset to have when cooking. It gives people a little bit more power over what it they really, it, it really is. It really is. And, and you mm -hmm. know, the thing is that patients should discuss that with their significant others or whoever's preparing the mm -hmm. meals. A lot of times, um, mm -hmm. you know, I convey this information and it may not be that person may not be preparing the meals, but I said, you know, talk this over with your spouse, who does the most yeah. meals, you know, that sort of thing. One other thing that I think is important with respect to that, a lot of my patients uh, are, you know, uh, lupus affects young women mostly, uh, folks are out working, um, and, you know, they often will eat meals out. I really think that another, this is sort of lifestyle, uh, is maybe avoid the fast food restaurants at lunch. Or if you go there, mm -hmm. have a salad um, as mm -hmm. opposed to, um, you know, something that's full of sodium uh, or salt. Um, and, and then when you go to fancier restaurants, and a lot of patients, myself included, and I know this is an unusual time in our history where we're not all going to restaurants as often as we used to, um, but nicer restaurants, if you say, I would like my meal prepared, you know, to be low salt, they will really make an effort. Uh, to do that. And, and it's a very useful thing. People may not have even thought about that when you're talking to your wait staff and say, you know, I really, I have a medical condition. I would really appreciate the salt to be um, re restricted. And, and the uh, most restaurants that prepare meals 
will will actually accommodate you. So that's another sort of little trick that you can use. That's a, um, that's a great tip. And in a lot of the fast food places or those the fast casual, you know, where they might have salads, I think a lot of them will now list a nutritional fact. So if someone was watching their diet or was working with their doctor or nutritionist or um, for a more restrictive diet, I think that could also be helpful too. Um, they really do put a lot more information out there. Um, yeah, certainly that's true. <clears throat> I've seen this a lot. You're exactly right. You know, when I was a kid growing up, we would go to fast food restaurants and it was sort of a black box of what you got, but it tasted good. <laughs> um, of course, you know, many yeah. of us grew up that way, but nowadays even most of the fast food places are really taking some responsibility. And so they'll help yeah. you make a choice. And I think that's, that's really good. And, and if you ever start to think about this, you know, you could ask your doctor um, to refer you to a dietitian, uh, we we often do that. Um, but even now nowadays on the internet, you can look through uh, sodium content of foods, and it might be a fun thing to try on a rainy afternoon if you're not doing anything, uh, <laughs> because because you would be amazed at the sodium content of many things that you wouldn't even think about. For example, bagels or donuts. Yeah, sure, sugar. They taste great, but they also have a very high salt content most of the time. So uh, you may be taking salt in and not even knowing it. Um, so that it helps to recognize what foods uh, have, you know, high salt content. Yeah, definitely. Now I'm going to have to reflect now on <laughs> my bagel <laughs> consumption last week. I didn't think about that, but I'm going to have to think about that now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> because you're right. You get that. No, you get that cream cheese on there, and <laughs> yeah, um, a lot of stuff. No, this, these are, these are some really great tips and really practical. I think we, you know, we get a lot of people who will call the health educators who have questions about, okay, am, am I looking towards, you know, kidney involvement? But we also will get people who call us who are on the opposite end of the spectrum. So some people have lupus lying quiet in their body and, you know, undetected, or maybe they haven't been to the doctor in a really long time, but all of a sudden they kind of get hit with a bunch of symptoms. They go to the doctor and they are, on the, on the opposite end of the spectrum where they've got severe kidney involvement. Um, so I want to know a little bit about how you approach that kind of a patient who comes to you at that stage of lupus nephritis, maybe what some of their options are going forward. So um, because of the way we practice uh, nephrology uh, clinic with our rheumatology colleagues, which is really, I, I must say, this multidisciplinary approach is something I really like because we're right there with physicians who, most of the physicians who are taking care of lupus patients. Um, so they'll refer a patient over and generally uh, they'll have seen the patient for lupus or a lot of times it's a referral for something unusual is going on because as most of the audience who has lupus will tell you it takes a long time to make a diagnosis and sometimes their general practitioner really doesn't put the whole thing together but then they'll do a urinalysis we've trained our rheumatologists really well <laughs> they're very good about doing mm -hmm. urines and they'll find that there's protein right. and blood in the urine they'll send the patient to me and um so we do a complete you know history and physical and um I try to see how bad the clinical involvement is or how significant, I don't want to use the word bad, how significant the clinical involvement is. And it can be anywhere from 
really asymptomatic, as I said early on, just abnormalities in the laboratory, uh, to patients who have uh, a lot of swelling, whose legs are swollen, who um, may have uh, also some swelling of the face when they wake up in the morning, <clears throat> swelling of the eyelids. Um, that's often what we see with patients who have, again, significant amount of protein in the urine. Um, we like to see patients early before they are so sick that, that the lupus has really affected their kidney function. Um, it's truly nowadays the minority of patients that come to see me with really poor kidney function. So most people will have maybe some increase in their serum creatinine, but not a sufficient increase that they're symptomatic from uremia. And uremia is a set of symptoms that we see in patients with very advanced renal insufficiency, and that can be nausea and vomiting, itching, uh, all sorts of electrolyte abnormalities um, in, their, in their blood, um, uh, even to the point of, you know, not thinking well, um, these types of things. That's a very rare presentation. Most patients are not in that sort of shape uh, when we see them. So I look, then, then I would look at the urine myself. I look under the microscope. <clears throat> try to get an idea of how inflammatory the urine looks because that really provides me with a um, sort of insight as to what's going on in the kidney. But ultimately, um, we need to do a kidney biopsy uh, when a patient has a significant clinical presentation of suggesting lupus involvement of the kidney. Now, there's there's a number of reasons for that. One is lupus nephritis is a specific diagnosis. And just again, for the audience, this is where we see these uh, autoantibodies, which is part of lupus. Your immune system is attacking the body. They're depositing in the kidney or they're, they're, they're accumulating in the kidney. Okay. That's lupus nephritis. And that can be very inflammatory, but there are other types of kidney involvement with lupus that can be uh, seen on a kidney biopsy and are important and may need to be treated differently. And one, one type is patients with lupus often have a hypercoagulable state so that they might form blood clots. And some of this is due to autoantibodies that are produced called, called antiphospholipid antibodies or lupus anticoagulants. Uh, some people may have heard those tests being ordered. And, and that can actually involve the kidney as well. And you get these small blood clots in the filtering units of the kidney, and that can cause damage too. And that requires a different sort of therapy than lupus nephritis. But for this talk, we'll just focus on the inflammatory disease with immunoglobulins and autoantibodies and lupus nephritis. So I would generally recommend the patient would have a kidney biopsy. We do the kidney biopsies. It sounds like a barbaric procedure, um, but it's really very sophisticated. We use a biopsy needle. Um, we do it under ultrasound guidance. Uh, where we visualize the kidney and then we simply ask the patient to hold their breath and we take a, a piece of the kidney that we can look at under the microscope. And of course, the patient is anesthetized so they don't feel anything. And this is really critically important. It gives us a lot of information. A, it allows us to make the diagnosis of lupus nephritis. That's not that hard from the clinical picture. We we Most of the time when the kidney is involved in a patient with lupus, they do have lupus nephritis that I just described. And then um, it also allows us to see the extent 
of acute damage to the kidney. And when I say acute damage to the kidney, I mean inflammation. And inflammation is is important because that's treatable and it allows me to sort of decide on what therapy uh, might be useful. And then it also allows us to see if there's a lot of chronic damage. Chronic damage is something we want to avoid because we don't have any way of reversing chronic damage. And although the kidneys have a large capacity to compensate for scarring and chronic damage, uh, eventually that catches up and then the kidneys can uh, further deteriorate. And we don't, we, we want to avoid that. We want to avoid going on to needing dialysis or transplantation. So, um, you know, this is, and then we talk a lot about this with our patients about how we're going to firm up the diagnosis histologically, looking at the kidney under the microscope, and then what we'll do after that. Gotcha. So really that staging is going to be super important to see what kind of treatment options there are. And hopefully there are going to be some that aren't, like you said, aren't dialysis or or directly to transplant. I know that can be a lot for someone to take on when they're just getting diagnosed and getting diagnosed with nephritis and being staged pretty with a pretty um, aggressive activity. It's very scary, right? It can be right? very scary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we, we need to first, we need to provide some reassurance that there's things we can do to prevent dialysis or the need for transplantation. Mm-hmm. And, and there truly are. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's number one. And number two, that this is, you know, it's not good, but it's something that we can take care of and and Mm -hmm. really have considerable success with, because that's what patients are are most concerned with, or one of the things Mm -hmm. patients are really concerned with, how is this going to change my life? And, you know, my, my goal with lupus nephritis is that it's an inconvenience for now, and then we get you back on track, and it isn't going to change your life. That's our goal. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's more of a, a management over 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 the lifetime of of, of staying on track. Um, right. So when we're looking at the future or the now or the near future for for people with lupus nephritis diagnosis, um, there are several drugs currently in clinical trials, which is super exciting. What kind of hope is out there for people with lupus and people who are seeing some kidney involvement with their lab results? What is out there now or what do you what are we seeing in the future to give them that hope that they will be able to get back on track and get get parts of their get parts of their life and their health back? Yeah. I think this is really for me and many of my colleagues and friends who who work with patients with lupus and autoimmune diseases is really uh the most exciting part of of our careers, uh, there has literally been a renaissance, uh, if you will, in terms of therapies uh, that are coming down the uh, pipeline for for lupus nephritis. So uh, just historically, patients that are listening will say, I got lupus nephritis and my doctor gave me a huge amount of prednisone or a huge amount of steroid. And that's true. And we still sort of do that mm-hmm. depending on how aggressive mm-hmm. the disease is. Yeah. But a, a lot of uh, the work that we're doing now uh, suggests that we can really get adequate control with uh, much more um, 
much shorter and much less corticosteroid than we have been using in the past. So that's uh, something that we are actively working on. I think we've made some significant strides in the last probably five years in understanding how much steroid really needs to be applied and many of us are using much less corticosteroid, and some of us are thinking that in the future we may be able to avoid or minimize corticosteroids. So that's one good point. Wow. The other that thing would be really that great. it would be really great because nobody likes taking steroids. Steroids are nobody great. Don't <laughs> don't don't get me wrong. They they're very important medications and they do a wonderful mm -hmm. job, but they also have a number of side effects that people don't mm -hmm. like, and I get that. Um, the other thing is that we've gone from very high doses of drugs like cyclophosphamide, which is a cancer drug. Uh, that's how it was developed, but now we use it in autoimmune diseases like lupus. And we found uh, with some clinical trials that occurred a few years ago that we have been giving quite high doses, and that has all sorts of side effects, mainly immunosuppression related. Uh, and now we found that you can use lower doses of drugs like that. So we've made progress using sort of the usual suspects of uh, immunosuppression. But what's really exciting to me is in the last year, we've had several clinical trials that have successfully shown novel therapies that provide benefit beyond standard of care. And, and that these drugs can be used safely. Uh, they don't necessarily increase adverse events. And um, it may be that um, over time we'll see that they decrease adverse events because we're treating things more specifically. So uh, we've had B-cell drugs uh, both in phase two and phase three. Uh, B cells are the cells of the immune system that produce antibodies, and so B cells that get affected by lupus or related to the pathogenesis or you know the the actual disease process of lupus make autoantibodies, and so it's always been considered that that eliminating those cells if possible, would help patients with lupus. And, and so now we have um, data from phase two studies and phase three studies, which suggest this is true. And so these wow. drugs will actually come up, hopefully, before the FDA over the next months to years, and then they'll be approved. And, and these drugs are very well tolerated um, in terms of side effect profiles. Okay, so that's wow. one one big uh, advantage. And then um, with another drug uh, trial that just finished up, phase two was successful, phase three was successful, and will hopefully also be looked at by the FDA very shortly uh, in terms of approval for lupus, is adding a calcineurin inhibitor. Calcineurin inhibitors are, are drugs that have long been used in the kidney transplant population to help us with organ rejection, in other words, to eliminate organ rejection and have tolerance. And then we've sort of put those into testing in patients with lupus. And the idea was to use a lower dose of several drugs um, to hit different parts of the immune system and then get a better response uh, rate for patients with lupus nephritis. And, and in fact, uh, we were actually able to show that, and this was a, race, a recently a phase uh, three trial that was um, 
uh, finished up uh, and, and, and actually done by the sponsor of this, this podcast. So we are yeah. looking uh, to that as another option. So um, I think what I would say to the patients that are listening are that we, we have made a concerted effort to use the standard of care drugs in the lowest doses that are effective and we've made progress in that way. And so the treatment of lupus in general using standard of care therapy is not as ter- terrible as it was in the past. Okay. I think well, I, I think people would say that. I would say yeah. that to patient. And then I think the, the other thing that's really hopeful is we now have at least two with two more drugs that are very rapidly uh, finishing up trials that will increase the numbers and types of drugs we have to treat people with. That's number one. Number two, they have much improved side effect profiles over what we've used in the past. And I think they um, will have improved efficacy. And the final thing is that, that I think is really important for people to understand is, is you know how um, everybody's different. Lupus is different in everybody as well. It's a very heterogeneous disease. And so to, to think that one drug would be able to treat everybody with lupus or lupus nephritis it isn't isn't the right way to think about it. I believe. I believe that we need to, mm-hmm. need to now figure out why a person's lupus is active, what type of mechanisms are at play, and then if we have a whole variety of drugs that target different mechanisms that are important to lupus, we might be able to match a mechanism and a drug, and and mm-hmm. really treat a person much more specifically rather than in the old-fashioned way, I I don't want to old-fashioned, but in the old way of treating, which was just crushing everything in the immune system with immunosuppression. Right. So, Mm -hmm. and and that ultimately, I think, will provide better efficacy of treatment as well as a a very tolerable side effect profile so people can get back to what they want to do. That is super exciting. I think it sounds like a much more tailored approach to treating lupus nephritis. Exactly, exactly right, yeah. So. Well, that's so exciting. Um, and it also kind of lends to why it's so important for people to be involved in research and stay up to date with research because things are happening and it's an exciting time. And like you said, there's there are some options on the horizon that we're very hopeful for. For those of you listening in who are inspired and excited about the possibility for what's around the corner, for lupus nephritis I, or research in general for lupus, I would urge you to visit our website at lupus.org forward slash get involved. And there's a lot of great information there on how to get involved in a patient registry or how to get involved in clinical trial. Thank you, Dr. Rovin, for your time today and your expertise. This is invaluable resource to people with lupus, and I um, hope they listen to it on repeat and um, reach out to the health educators if they have any other questions or concerns. Thank you so okay. much. Hey, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Rovin, for all the great information that you shared with us today about kidney health. For those of you listening in, if you'd like to hear an additional episode of the Expert Series with Dr. Rovin, please go to Season 2 of the Expert Series by going to lupus.org forward slash the Expert Series. 
And if you'd like to learn more about living well with lupus, you can find additional resources on the National Resource Center on Lupus at lupus.org forward slash resources. And if you'd like to talk with our health educators, you can go to lupus.org forward slash health educators to fill out a health inquiry, or you can call at 800-558-0121. And if you'd like to connect with others who are affected by lupus, check out our online community, Lupus Connect, where you can talk with others, find emotional support, and discuss practical insights for coping with the daily challenges of lupus. You can find the community and sign up at lupus.org forward slash resources, forward slash Lupus Connect. Thank you and have a great day.